Now, let me say right off the bat today, I'm preaching today at me. Okay, this sermon is directed toward Les Chapman. If your toes get stepped on, it's because your toes are under my toes. All right? I'm stepping on mine today. I desperately, desperately need to hear this lesson. We're in Romans chapter 2. And let me just tell you, growing up, it's not a lesson I ever heard. It's not something we preached on. And it's sure not something that I practiced. And so I hope that it will be something that will help you today, encourage you, and maybe even set you free in some areas. It's the winter of uh, A.D. 57. Paul is in Corinth. He's having a winter there. His intentions to leave in the spring. It's January, February of that year. And he's going to be sailing toward Jerusalem with a large contribution from the Gentile churches to the Jewish churches. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. But he's Jewish through and through. A Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee, a grandson of a Pharisee, trained at the feet of Gamaliel, the great rabbi in Jerusalem. Paul is as Jewish as you can get, but he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's trying how to bring these two groups together. Because you see, why he's been there in Corinth, people traveling from Rome, perhaps also wintering there, have informed him that as the Jewish Christians began to move back into Italy, into Rome, Claudius had kicked them out eight years earlier. The emperor had said, y'all are fussing too much about someone named Christos. So get out. And so all the Jews had been forced to leave, leaving a pure Gentile church for the first time in, in, in New Testament history. Now these Jewish Christians are moving back, among them people like Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul's hearing that it's not going good in the churches. They're, they're having problems in their fellowship meals. They're having problems in their assemblies. There's a lot of bad attitude going on. And so Paul sits down because he needs the Roman church to be strong. His goal, go to Jerusalem, give the gift to the, to the Jewish brethren there, leave Jerusalem, go to Rome, and then from Rome, launch into Spain. That's his plans. God has other plans, but that's his plans. And so he sits down and he, and he pins Romans... And and in chapter 1, after introducing the gospel, he turns to the Gentile world. And last week, we listened to him. As Paul said, can I tell you where the Gentiles went off the rail? They knew God. But they exchanged God for images like animals and human beings. And God, as a result of that, gave them over. And it was not good. He ends with this incredible condemnation of the Gentile world at large. He says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of them who practice them. Now, you need to be in the church at Rome. That chapter has just been read. All right? I don't know who was reading it in the churches, but that chapter had just been read. And when that last verse right there was finished, the Jewish brethren were going, Amen! Woo! Hallelujah! And if Tony had been there, he'd say, Somebody give somebody a high five. I mean, they were excited. 
They were like, thank you, Paul, for telling these Gentile brethren where they came from. Paul knew they would react that way. Paul would have reacted that way a few years earlier. And Paul had set them up. You see, as they were sitting there so smug at church, very likely among their own kind, if you know what I mean, Paul in chapter 2 turns on them. And so we're fixing to fly through chapter 2, so put your tray in an upright lock position, make sure your seatbelt is on because here we go. As he turns to them, he says, Listen, I know all about Jewish-Gentile animosity. I mean, I know the way the Jews have treated the Gentiles. They look at the Gentiles as being unclean. And by the way, you go back to the Torah, and they are unclean. You come in contact with a Gentile, you've got to be immersed to be made ceremonially clean. But you know, it's one thing to be unclean, but it's another thing to have such an attitude that you want to make sure everybody realizes they're unclean. You turn over to Acts chapter 15, you have Peter who goes to the household of Cornelius and looks at what he says as he walks in the door. He says to Cornelius, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew like me to associate with or visit a Gentile. And then you need to underline that next phrase, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. God has shown me? Y'all remember how God did it? Three visions. Three visions of a sheep coming down with unclean animals and God saying to Peter, arise, kill and eat. And Peter's response was, no. Can I give you all a word of advice? Don't give that response to God. That's a terrible response. When God tells you to do something, it's yes. It's not no. And then an angel of the Lord spoke to him and then the Holy Spirit spoke to him. And it took the combination of all three of those for Peter to get it in his thick skull that God loves the Gentiles as much as he does the Jews. And let me tell you, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and encounters a firestorm because of it. I mean, that's how bad this problem was. Number two, many Jews had developed a judgmental, condescending attitude. It's one thing to say you're unclean. It's another thing to be arrogant in that process. That word condescending. That's a phrase that means that you look down at someone as if they're an idiot. As if they don't have a clue. And can I give you, give you just a hint, a little insight? You want to light me up? Treat me with condescension. And I'm serious as I can be. For years, I couldn't figure out why certain men and women had the ability to push my button. Until John Micah, oh, it's been 20 years ago. John Micah was taking classes out at Trebekah, and he came in and he said, Leslie, I was studying about condescension today, and he began to talk about it. And the more he talked about it, I said, wait a minute, go back through that again. And it dawned on me that what I'd been struggling with for years with certain people was that they approached me with condescension. And boy, it lit me up. Well, the Jews were masters of it. Not all of them. But people like Paul, before he became a Christian, oh, he could be condescending. Thought he was right. Ah, oh, but he wasn't. 
And then the Gentiles had responded in the way I responded to people. You speak to me with condescension, and I've got to tell you, I don't like you. I don't like you at all. And the Gentiles didn't like the Jews that did that. Now, not all Jews were that way. Jews had been scattered throughout the empire, but by and large, they were. And boy, Paul knew it because he had been it. And it was with that in mind that he now turns to these Jewish brethren and he says, you. Notice that pronoun there. All through chapter 1, they, 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 they. He gets to chapter 2 with they slapping their hands and saying, hallelujah, Paul, you're telling them. He says, now you. And look at what he says. You have no excuse. You who pass judgment. There's your key word in the whole text. You who passed judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you passed judgment. You do the same thing. We'll see that he'll come back to that here in just a moment. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who, who basically wrote the book of James as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but if you'll read the Sermon on the Mount and then go read the book of James, you're like, wait a minute, they're talking about the same thing all the way through. Yes, they are. But in the book of James, watch what the half-brother of Jesus says. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them. There it is. John 7, 1 and 2. Or judges them. Speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it. You're sitting in judgment on it. And here's the verse you need to highlight. Highlight it, underline it, aster it. I mean, whatever it takes to make sure you know it. But look at verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge. And it's not me. And it's not you. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord. And boy, he makes that. The one who is able to save and destroy. He's the one who decides who's in and who's out. And then he says, but you, who are you? To try to set in Jesus' judgment seat. Boy, I need to hear that. Because my upbringing was right the opposite. I have to tell you, we learned a lot of scripture when I was a kid growing up in North Mississippi. This was not one of them. We somehow skipped over this one all the time. He goes on and he says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. What is he saying? What he's saying is, when Les Chapman assumes the role of judge, I don't have all the facts. I, I can't have the facts. But God does have the facts. He knows the intentions of the heart. He knows what's going on in the people's lives. And so look at verse 3. So when you, a mere human being, that's all we are. We're not God. We're mere human beings, and when we pass judgments and yet do the same things? You'll come back to that one again, like I said, here in just a moment. Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? And then here's what bothers me. He then turns and says, or do you show contempt? Like I said, I hate contempt. Except when I show it. And you see, that's when it's not contempt, it's, you know, truth. But look at who the contempt is shown to. 
Or do you show contempt for the riches of His? Wait a minute, whose? His kindness. Whose kindness? God's. His forbearance. His patience. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance as well as everyone else. You see, when I step in and become a judge, I'm preempting God's work. I'm already declaring something that God says, it's not time to declare. And who gave you the right to declare it? And God's like, you know, I'm working on this person, right? And I'm also working on you. And when we presume to be judges, we show contempt to the supreme judge and only judge, our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And God, through Jesus, said, For in the same manner you judge others, you'll be judged. The measure you use, be measured to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm hoping God's real lenient when I come in front of Him. I'm serious. I'm hoping God's a forgiving God. Because if He's not, I'm in trouble. Now, of course, I understand Jesus Christ is the one who takes care of that. I get it. Please, if you're thinking, Leslie, you don't understand how... Yes, I do understand how it works. I'm just saying that we need to understand how judging works. Right after uh, teaching us about prayer uh, in, the, in, in chapter 6, in the model prayer, Jesus says, by the way, if you don't forgive those who sin against you, your Heavenly Father's not going to forgive you. You better understand the attitude you should have toward others. And, and notice what he says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're stirring up wrath. You've just clapped about the wrath that's coming upon the Gentiles, but you're stirring up wrath for you on the day of God's wrath. He's going to be righteous when he judges. And so what happens in the rest of this, this chapter is he sets up a judgment scene. You've got a courtroom. God's on the seat or Jesus is on the seat. He's God. He's on the seat. And he says, can I explain how judgment's going to take place? And watch what he says. He says, God, first of all, is going to repay each person according to what they've done. It's going to be a fair judgment. Paul's quoting here out of Proverbs 24, 12. Look at the last line. Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? God's going to judge fairly. We can count on that. And God's verdict is going to be true. But here's the problem. It's not the verdict we expected. Watch what he says here. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he's going to give eternal life. Now you look at that and you go, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, it's those who believe in Jesus Christ that he gives eternal life. You need to realize that Paul's stepping way back and he's giving two basic rules of, of judgment. You have those who seek God, and if you seek God, God says, you'll find me. And then you have those who seek self. Look at the language here. He goes on and he says, but for those who are self-seeking, those who are just focused on themselves, they don't care about God, they're only concerned about them, they reject the truth, they follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. Now, a lot of people look at this and they don't like that first line. To those who by persistence in doing good, we're not saved because we do good. Be careful on that one. Because even though we are saved by grace through faith, it is a faith that does. It's a faith that acts. 
He goes on and he says, listen, there will be trouble and distress for every human being. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for all those that do good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Once again, making it abundantly clear, in God's court, there is no favoritism. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, the very end of it, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only the one who does. James will come back and he'll comment on this very passage in James chapter 2 when he says, listen, faith without works, y'all remember the rest of it? It's dead. I mean, faith, you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. We sometimes, unfortunately, go to extremes. Either it's all about what we do and nothing about God's grace or it's all about God's grace and nothing about what we do. And both of those are wrong extremes. Yes, we're saved by grace. Through faith, that does. That works. We need to understand that. And then here's where he really throws a curveball. You know, the World Series will be coming up here in just a few weeks. And, and boy, I mean, if God had been pitching this day, he would have striked out everyone. I mean, you don't talk about throwing a curve to these Jews. He throws a curve to them. He says, by the way, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. The Jews would have said, great, yes, we agree with that. But then notice what he says. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law. Going back to the doing part. A lot of Jews had heard the Torah, but a lot of them had not obeyed it. And then, here's that curve. I mean, here's where he throws a curve that they just swing and they're like, where did that come from and where did it go? Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the Torah, they didn't have the law of Moses, but when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they become a Torah to themselves. Wait, wait a minute, excuse me? Yeah, let's keep looking. Even though they do not have the Torah, they show that the requirements of the law are actually written on the heart. You say, I don't care whether you're Jew or Gentile, everyone agrees stealing is wrong. I don't care if you're Jew or Gentile, everybody knows that murder is wrong. There are certain things that are universally known. And Paul says those are the things written on their hearts. And he says the Gentiles know that. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts. And then he says, and guess what? They're just like us Jews. Sometimes they condemn them or accuse them and sometimes they defend them. I mean, the Jews are sitting there trying to figure out, excuse me, the Gentiles are sitting there trying to figure out how do I seek this God I don't know, obey the law on my heart that I do know, how do I honor him? I love this story in 2 Kings. Naaman is a Gentile. He's not only a Gentile, he's a Gentile enemy of God's people. He's the commanding general of the Syrian army. Second most powerful man in Damascus. Only problem is he has leprosy. He's captured a Jewish girl, Israelite girl, who says there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha. If you'll go to him, he can cleanse you of your leprosy. Y'all remember the story, don't you? I mean, Naaman goes to Elisha. Elisha doesn't even come out. He sends a servant out and says, listen, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. You'll come up clean and, 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 and your leprosy will be gone. And Naaman is furious. I mean, if you've ever seen the Jordan River, by the way, the Jordan River 
basically is about as wide as this auditorium. I mean, it's not a big river. It's not the Cumberland River. I mean, it's nowhere near big as the Cumberland. And not only that, it is dirty like the Cumberland. And, and Naaman's like, why in the world do I want to wash in the dirty waters of the Jordan River? And man, he's heading back to Damascus. You know, this is ridiculous. And, and one of his servants says, please, give the man a try. And so he goes down. He says, all right, I'll do it. Washed once, still leprosy. Twice, still leprosy. Four, five, six. He gets to the seventh time, and he's like, it's not going away. And then he goes under the seventh time, and he comes up, and he's clean. And Naaman's like, wow. And so he goes back to Elisha and says, I've got to pay you. I mean, y'all, if we go to the doctor, we pay, right? I mean, how many of us get out of the doctor's office without paying? Elisha said, you don't owe me anything. And then here's what he says. If you will not accept payment from me, please let me, your servant, notice his attitude now, your servant, not the servant of the king of Damascus, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. I need to take Israelite dirt back to Damascus. And then notice what he says. He says, for your servant will never again make a burnt offering and sacrifice to any other god but the Lord. And boy, Elisha looks at that and says, wow, a Gentile who wants to worship the God of Israel. Yes. By the way, he wasn't the only one. There were multitudes of, of Gentiles who tried to seek the God of Israel. But he had a problem. You see, he's commander of the armies. And so he says to Elisha, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing, when my master, the king, enters the temple of Remon, there in Damascus, to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm. I've got to take him in there. I escort him in there. I'm the general. And he says, And I have to bow there also. He says, I've got to do it. I'm, I'm the general of the army. I've got to go in with the king. We go into a pagan temple. We go before a god who's not a god. And I'm going to bow down. May the Lord forgive your servant for this. He said, I'm stuck. And Elisha says to him, go in shalom. Go in the peace of God. God understands. And, of course, Naaman is held up as one of these great men of faith. Why? Because he's a Gentile who did exactly what Paul says you've got to do. And he says, and this will take place on the day when God judges his people. He knows the secrets of Naaman's heart as well as every Gentile and every Jew. And Jesus is going to judge fairly. And, boy, this is where he then lights into them. You're thinking, well, I thought he's done lit in. Not like he does now. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the Torah and boast in God, if you know His will, approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the Torah, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, because you have in law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth. What's Paul doing? Paul's taking the very thing that the Jewish Christians are saying to the Gentiles back in Rome and turning it on them. You see, when they had returned to Rome, some of their Jewish pride, not all of them, Priscilla and Aquila, probably not, but some of the Pharisaical Christians, absolutely. 
And here's what they said to their Gentile brethren. We know God's will. We went to Torah school. You didn't. We are a guide to the blind. And by the way, guess who was blind? The Gentiles. We were. He says, we're a light to those in dark. The Gentiles. We are instructor of the foolish. Now you're starting to get condescending. We Gentiles. Your teacher of little children. I'm a little child? Yeah. At least that's the way the Jewish Christians, some of them, felt. And you have the Torah, the embodiment of knowledge of truth. And Paul sitting there as an old Jew going, that's exactly the way I used to feel. But it's not in the Torah where God's truth and knowledge is embodied. It's in one named Jesus of Nazareth. And then he turns on them. He turns on them at that one thing that they're so confident in, which is their circumcision. See, Paul had been fighting that now for years. I mean, Jewish Christians who kept saying to the Gentiles, you can be one of God's people if you become a Jew first. You men have to be circumcised. And Paul said, absolutely not. And so he says, let's deal with it. You who then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Do we steal? By the way, everything he says here can be applied to Christians today just like it could to Jews back then. I mean, I, I suspect none of us in here robbed a bank last week. But I wonder how many of us took something home from the office that didn't belong to us. Or how many of us this next spring when the income tax has to be filled out, well, if I don't report this, I won't have to pay taxes on that part of it. I mean, do we who preach against stealing, do we steal? To those who say you shouldn't commit adultery, Jesus says, do you look at other men's wives and lust in your heart for them? Do you do it? You may not commit adultery literally. You do in your heart. Do you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? I mean, Paul could easily go back to Malachi and say, you Jews who ought to be giving a tithe, when that collection plate comes by, if Jesus was sitting right beside you and looked at what you put in that collection plate, would he smile or would he shake his head just in unbelief? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, how God would look at what we give back to him, would God look at that and just go, really, after all I have given you, that's what you give me? I mean, Paul turns this on them. And he says, listen, you need to realize the hip hypocrisy, hypocrites, some of you, that's what you are. Now, let me say a word right here about that. I hear oftentimes people say, I, I, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. In one sense, that's always true. I had a dear friend, I was talking to Barry Potts earlier. Barry and I have a mutual friend, gone to be with the Lord several years ago. But he used to say to me all the time, Les, there's a measure of hypocrisy in every one of us. He was right. I mean, it may not be there, we may not be intending to be hypocrites. It may be because of ignorance. It may be because of blindness. I mean, it's a lot of things that can cause us. But let's be honest, the church is full of hypocrites who are trying to be less hypocritical every day. It's kind of like saying the church is full of sick people. It is, who are trying to be less sick every day. And so Paul, when he says, 
got to be careful about judging others because you always point those other four fingers towards you. You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking it. And then he quotes from the Old Testament about how that the, the, the Jewish God was being blasphemed, blasphemed because of the Jews before the, uh, the Gentiles, Ezekiel 36, 22. I mean, here Ezekiel says, God is going to do what God always promised. But notice, it's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things. It's for the sake of my holy name. Why? Because of you, my name's being blasphemed out in the Gentile world. And again, this can be translated over to us Christians just as easily. One of the hardest things I've ever had said to me, I was in the 10th grade, and my faith was evident. I mean, anybody who knew me knew who I was, knew what I believed. And I'd done something one weekend. I mean, y'all, I didn't get out and get drunk. I didn't get out and, you know, do something horrible. I simply treated a friend in a way I shouldn't have treated him. And he walked in the next Monday. And he walked up to me and said, And you claim to be a Christian? I've never been cut that deeply. That's something all of us need to ask ourselves. Are people around us saying behind our backs, And he or she claims to be a Christian? That's what Paul's trying to say to them. And so he finally turns to this thing called circumcision that they, the Jewish ones, the Jewish brethren are so proud of. They're still, especially the Pharisaical ones, are still hanging on to it. And Paul says, listen, circumcision has value. For you Jews, it has value if you observe the law. But he says, if you're not keeping the law, then you're really just like those who are uncircumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirement, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Here's where Paul throws that curve again. He said, you Jews who are physically circumcised, who violate the law, it's as if you're uncircumcised. When the Gentiles who are uncircumcised keep the law, it's like they're circumcised. Again, this is Old Testament language. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code, the Torah, and circumcision, you're a lawbreaker. And then he says this, A Jew is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. It's not about what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. And of course, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. It's in here. That's what makes us children of Abraham. And circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the Torah. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. That's what we're trying to do. Boy, he's just pounding us here. And he's saying, what are you presenting to the world? If it's not from the heart... The world doesn't need to see it. Colossians 2. One of the most amazing texts in all of Scripture. Paul again, dealing with his circumcision. Watch what he says. In him, you also were circumcised. Whoa, 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 whoa. I wasn't circumcised when I became a Christian. 
Yes, you were. By the way, male or female, watch what he says. With a circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And then he explains how. He says, when you went down in these waters and were buried in baptism, look at the text, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, in those waters, Jesus came, Spirit came, Father came. And they took that which we so desperately needed to get rid of, that sinful, sinful desire in our lives, and he cut it out. And he gave us a new heart, and a new life and a new creation. That's why baptism is so important. It's not just a, a, a visible symbol. It's a spiritual act that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit joins us in the water. Ezekiel would put it this way, predicting this very thing. God would say through Ezekiel, I'll give you a, a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you the heart of stone. That's what he cuts out. The old hard heart. And give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you. That gift of the spirit, Acts 2.38, that so many of us grew up not hearing about. That's the most important part of the verse. I mean, is baptism important? Yes. Is repentance important? Yes. Is the forgiveness of sins important? Absolutely. But what's the most important is the circumcision of the heart taking place where the Spirit of God now has a dwelling place in which to change who we are. And that's what he calls us to move toward. If God's people can never get off the seat of judgment and become reconcilers of the world back to Jesus... Realizing that God is working in the hearts and lives of all of those around us. And instead of judging, find a way to find common ground and to study together, to journey together, to be the people of God together. What a difference the world would see. I've repented a million times in my life for having violated so much of this. And I know my God has forgiven me. I don't know where you're at in your life. It may be you need to be circumcised. You need to be baptized. You need to let God work in your life. It may be that you need to say, you know what, God, boy, I've made this mistake. Please forgive me. Whatever you need, we're here to help you, to assist you. We've got a beautiful song we're going to sing. If you need to come, come right now. Together we stand and sing.